0: Are back continuing our talk with author Sam Keen about his book The Disappearing Spoon and Other Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of the Elements.
1: You list a section of, of your five favorite elements, and I, I thought I'd mention one in particular, Molybdenum, first, first of all because everybody mispronounces the name, and, and you yep. uncovered a tale about World War One conflict fought over it that took place in, of all places, Colorado. Talk, tell about that story.
2: Sure, uh, molybdenum again, kind of an obscure element. But if you sprinkle molybdenum into steel, it actually makes the steel much tougher and much more resistant uh, to heat deformation. And the Germans discovered this during World War One, and they thought, Wow, this is great because they just invented their uh, their big Bertha guns, and they could only fire them so quickly unless they had molybdenum steel, moly steel, they called it in which case they could fire off many more rounds per hour. Uh, But unfortunately, they didn't really have much molybdenum around in Germany, and no one else had much molybdenum either. It was kind of a useless element at the time. Uh, But the Germans did find one uh, abandoned, almost bankrupt mine in Colorado, in Bartlett Mountain in Colorado. And so they actually sent agents in to that mine to try to harass the owners of the mine and throw them off the land so they could get their hands on this molybdenum metal and ship it back to Germany. And eventually they ended up harassing the owners enough that they got control of the mine. And part of the reason why Germany uh, hung on long enough during World War I was they had this underground channel of molybdenum coming in from the United States. So. In some ways, it was kind of the most remote battle of World War I, and it took place in the United States.
1: We're speaking with author Sam Keene about his book, The Disappearing Spoon, and other tales of madness, love, and the history of the world from the periodic table of the elements. I, I was quite shocked uh, to hear that this-, this tale basically repeats itself again in World War Two. The Germans were looking for tungsten this time instead of molybdenum and the Nazis really wanted to use that in weapons, and, and somehow there was a, a free trade of it going on that the Allies didn't step in to do anything about.
2: Right. Uh, tungsten sits right, above, or right below molybdenum on the periodic table. Uh, so again, it, it makes steel stronger, tougher. The Germans wanted it for their tanks and other weapons. And this time they had to look to Portugal to get their tungsten. Uh, Portugal was supposed to be neutral, during the war, but they were shipping, again, loads and loads of tungsten through France. And people knew about it across the world. Uh, Winston Churchill knew all about it, and uh, they didn't really do anything to stop it. FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, was a little upset (laughs) with everyone that they weren't jumping in to cut off the tungsten supply, but it just kept going through most of World War II. And Portugal ended up actually making a killing off it. They uh, made a lot of money And they had in their vaults, in their central banks, bars and bars of gold with swastikas stamped on them (laughs) that Germany had actually traded just to get their hands on tungsten. So it was worth more to them than gold was, apparently.
1: Well, your book isn't about German science uh, completely, but there was one one (laughs) further example, a horrifying example you noted about uh, uh, scientists maybe doing harm, maybe more than anybody else you can think of in the book, Fritz Haber. A man who figured out how to take nitrogen out of our atmosphere, he was able to figure out how to fix that into compounds that we now use as fertilizer, which is uh, you know, is, is certainly a, uh, a great positive for the world, and feeding, uh, feeding the people of the earth. Now considered to be a bit of a mixed blessing with all of the runoff and in, in causing algal blooms and things. But Fritz Haber really went south when he decided to turn his talents to poison gases in, in World War I. You had quite a vivid story about him.
2: Yeah, he uh, was one of the more talented chemists who ever lived, but uh, he was a very fierce German patriot, and uh, as I describe in the book, the early attempts at gas warfare uh, were a little more buffoonish than anything. They had shells that would freeze and then didn't work right, and nothing really happened much until Fritz Haber took over, and he's the one who really made uh, gas warfare notorious, especially with the element chlorine and mustard gas and some of those things, where he really figured out how uh, to make them poisonous, and um, he was very proud of the work he'd done. Uh, his wife, however, was appalled by the work he had done, and after he came home one night after the first successful gas attack, uh, they had a quarrel, and she actually shot herself in their garden over the quarrel and the disagreement they were having about his role in gas warfare. And Haber didn't even actually stay for her funeral. He took off the very next day to oversee more gas attacks at other places. So a very talented man, but a very cold and in some ways cruel man as well.
1: Well, on a lighter note, an element that uh, just about works its way into the title of your book, The Disappearing Spoon, refers to um, one element that's Nearly liquid at room temperature. It, 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 it turns to liquid at, at a little bit above room temperature. And uh, this is something you can do quite a bit of pranks with if you, say, develop a spoon made out of the element gallium.
2: Yes, gallium. Uh, it actually sits right below aluminum on the periodic table. So, again, they have very similar properties. They look a lot alike. Uh, but as you said, the gallium will start to melt. at It's about roughly 84 degrees Fahrenheit. So even in the palm of your hand gallium will start to soften up, start to melt. And uh, it's sort of a classic nerdy science prank to make a spoon out of gallium metal and then to serve it to somebody with hot coffee or tea or something like that. And, of course, they think they're just getting an aluminum spoon or something, but they uh, figure out something's up when uh, the gallium spoon disappears on them. So, hence the title of the book.
1: Well, speaking of nerdy science pranks, I was quite amused by the little digression you had about uh, a Boy Scout that got the bright idea he was going to build a nuclear reactor out in the shed. <laughs> and and he had some success in gathering up nuclear materials and got quite a few people very excited about what he was up to.
2: Uh, yes, he did. David Hahn, who uh, they called him the Radioactive Boy Scout, <laughs> uh, he was, he actually did try to build... A, a nuclear reactor, a uranium reactor, in his uh, parents' uh, garden shed out in their backyard this this was in suburban Detroit, and his parents uh, just sort of let him go at it. They didn't really know what he was doing, and they thought it was a little unusual. he kept having to throw his clothes away every time <laughs> he went out there, but they figured you know he knew what he was doing, and he got some. Uranium, I believe it was from somewhere in the Czech Republic. He just wrote away for it. Uh, they sent it to him, and he was writing letters to the U.S. government, posing as a professor and saying, "I need help getting a visible amount of uranium together." And they wrote back with pamphlets to help him out. And so this uh, 16, 17-year-old was putting all this together in his uh, his parents' backyard, basically. Um, and he he didn't get anything to go or work very well, uh, but he. Did succeed in, uh, you know, contaminating the entire area and getting the uh, federal investigators called in, raiding his uh, his mother's house looking for stuff. So this was pre uh, pre 9/11. So uh, things probably would have uh, come down much harder than they did for him. They were a little lenient with him, and he actually joined the navy at one point. Uh, but even then, they wouldn't let him work on nuclear subs like he wanted to. <laughs>
1: Well, sad to note, women have been shunted aside again and again in in science, and and you talk about a few examples of that. One that struck me was a woman, Maria Geppert Meyer. She figured out how the atomic nucleus sort of stacks up together, which was important for chemistry. She couldn't get an academic post, finally got a job at UC San Diego. She wins the Nobel Prize, and you note the local paper headline said, S.D. Mother (laughs) wins Nobel Prize.
2: Yeah, that that was apparently the most salient thing about her was that she was a mother uh, to a few children. And as you said, she bounced around the country. Her husband was also a scientist, and he kept getting posts. And sometimes places would uh, sort of indulge her and let her hang around the male faculty and talk science. But oftentimes they wouldn't even do that, and she just could not find a job that would pay her for her work. And then eventually she won a Nobel Prize for it. So she won in the end, I guess.
1: When you talked about aluminum earlier, how it went from being uh, terribly precious to to very commonplace, almost worthless, what would you say is the most worthless element on the whole periodic table?
2: Oh, the most worthless element. Hmm. That is a good question. In previous ages, you could have said that silicon would probably be the most worthless, but not anymore. Um, I've learned not to offend uh, too many elements because everyone has their favorite, and they call in and get a little upset about
1: it. <laughs> How about the rarest element, actinium, which is the one that's so, maybe one ounce in the whole crust of the Earth, or the whole planet. Yeah,
2: that that one's safer to answer. Uh, it's astatine, which astatine, is very, yeah. very rare. Yes. As you said, throughout the entire world. There's only one ounce of it, so that one is uh, not very useless. <laughs> or, me, not very useful. Uh, not not a lot of uh, practical use for that
1: one. Well, you noted in the book even that you had some personal favorites. Tell, talk a bit about those and why you why you like them.
2: Uh, I would definitely say mercury is my favorite element, just because I sort of have a, a personal history, a personal love of it. And it also has such a rich and long history uh, in science and alchemy. Uh, the Greeks and Romans knew about it, and they associated gods and planets with it. So I definitely think that uh, is my, my favorite element, just the, the combination of so many different things about it.
1: And did you ever, get, did you ever collect elements? I, I tried that in high school for a while. I, didn't get, I got maybe less than 20 of them, but it was, it was a fun project. <laughs> did you ever do that?
2: Well, we did uh, have an unusual collection of mercury, sort of an accidental collection of it in our house, because uh, I was a little clumsy as a kid, and I was a little sickly. I came down with strep throat something like a dozen times one year, and my mother would put an old-fashioned mercury thermometer beneath my tongue, and uh, not infrequently I would drop it, and it would break, uh, and it would go scattering across the floor, but I was always kind of secretly excited when that happened, uh, because I just thought it was the most gorgeous substance ever. And my mother would actually get down on her hands and knees with a toothpick, and she would brush the little spheres of mercury together. Uh, and we actually kept them over the years in a little pill jar on a knickknack shelf in our kitchen. And every once in a while, she would get it down and let us play with a little bit of mercury. So, we we had a, we had that we didn't have a, a collection of many other elements, so, but I was plenty satisfied
1: with mercury. Well, I, I actually had a, a blood pressure a, a device break when I was in medical training, so I got I got quite a score of mercury myself. So I know what you're talking about. It's oh, fun yes, fun to have a little bottle of it. I guess final question. I uh, just a little bit off topic, slightly. A lot of people who, who talk about the dangers of nuclear power bemoan how radioactive elements remain dangerous for this or that amount of time. But uh, as you you point out that you know uh, radioactive elements change into something else whereas there are some other things out there that are poisonous forever.
2: Yeah, th- there are. There are a fair number of elements on the table uh that you know kind of remain poisonous for all time. Uh but the nuclear elements will eventually go away. It is a tough call figuring out what to do uh with the radioactive waste. Um you know burying it underground might work, it might not. Um I mentioned in the book at one point, there was actually, two billion years or so ago, there was actually a natural nuclear reactor yes. uh, in Africa that went off, and the nuclear waste there was actually fairly contained for a long period of time. So, you know, you can go back and forth on it either way.
1: And I guess just final question and comment, we started talking about bismuth before, it seems like it's a poison, turns out it's a medicine. It also seemed like it was a stable element, but some bright spark figured out that actually... It isn't stable. It does break down like uranium. It just does so very, very slowly.
2: It's the last element that will disappear among the elements that will disappear. So eventually, at the very, very end of the universe, if it lasts that long, uh, we'll have smaller elements around still, but a lot of the larger elements will disappear. And among all of the ones that disappear, bismuth will be the last one to disappear (laughs) because... It has a half life of I don't know how many zero. There were lots lots of zeros <laughs> I remember. It breaks down achingly, achingly slowly. But a few scientists in, I believe, France, they got a big enough sample together and they watched it enough to determine that it will eventually break down. So it'll be the last one to go, but someday there will be no more business.
1: The book is The Disappearing Spoon and Other True Tales of Madness, Love and the History of the World. From the Periodic Table of the Elements. We'll be speaking with Sam Keane about this excellent book, which I, Sam, I can't recommend uh, highly enough, and I thank you for writing it and and for speaking with us.
2: Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's a
0: pretty great interview, and uh, there's, there's not a whole lot I can add, but. The the one the one big question that I had at least after listening to it was, what the heck is the deal with that natural nuclear reactor that he mentioned in Africa? I, I thought that was pretty crazy and uh, really wanted to know more. So I did looked it up and. Apparently, the way this worked is that uranium-rich uh, mineral deposits became inundated with groundwater, which then slowed down the neutrons in the uranium, causing a chain reaction. And this would cause the water to boil, and it would, uh, it would boil up through the nearby sandstone until it was all gone, which would slow or stop the reaction. Then, after cooling, the water would seep back through the stone and inundate the uranium again, and the reaction would start all over, creating a, as he said, natural nuclear reactor underground. This has only ever happened in a single known location in the whole history of the Earth, in a, uh, a country called Gabon in Africa, which I'm embarrassed to say I'd never heard of. But uh, I think we can all count ourselves to be pretty lucky that this isn't a common natural occurrence. Undoubtedly awesome, though it may be. We need to take a short break. You're listening to the best of Radio Parallax. I'm Graham Smith, sitting in for Douglas Everett. Superman.